Let me encourage you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 15. Uh, We are moving right along, and um, just because of time, uh, we're we're not going to be um, uh, celebrating is not the word, but we're not going to be doing a study next week, even though it is Palm Sunday on the triumphal entry of Jesus. We've we've we looked at that not too many weeks ago, and so uh, we're going to continue on um, with the next section, verses 16 through. 20 uh, next week in chapter 15, uh, but then we will take a break for Easter uh, and, and look at a special text there. <clears throat> um, I want to thank everybody who's been praying for me and my family, and uh, we're, we're doing, doing well and, and appreciate the prayers. Um, uh, we just got into uh, to, to hitting people, and, uh, and I found that I really like that. It's really fun. <laughs> I now understand why people hit people so much. Um, but be praying for me because people are going to start hitting back soon. So um, uh, I can always use your, use your prayers uh, for safety and wisdom. Um, today we're going to be looking at a text. And, and what I want you to, to throw in the back of your mind is um, I want you to note how loudly Jesus expressed the statement, I love you, when he didn't say anything. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you and I praise you for being kind and good. And I thank you for our opportunity to gather together again and, and, and listen to your word. And I, I pray, Lord, that as we study together, Lord, that your spirit would convict us and challenge us and open our, our eyes and our hearts to understand the, the full extent of your expression of love for sinners like us. God, give us grace to see it and feel it anew. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're just going to walk through this text. It's a rather large text that we're going to look at, and so we're going to walk through it uh, together. Let's start with verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now, Mark reminds us again that the people leading the way for the death of Jesus is the Sanhedrin, which is is comprised of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes or the teachers of the law. Now, we've talked about this before, and Sanhedrin generally is a a group of between, well, officially there's only 71 people who get a vote on the Sanhedrin. And the reason it says chief priest rather than chief priest is because once you've served as the chief priest, you have kind of a an ad hoc position on the Sanhedrin, but you don't get a vote other than the year you're actually serving as the chief priest. Um, but you, you are an advisor to the group. And remember that because Israel was not an independent people, since they had been subjected by the Romans, they didn't have the ability to put someone to death. So the plans that they had to make revolved around finding a way to convince the Romans to execute Jesus. In Matthew's account, he makes this plain to us in Matthew 27, verse 1. It says, Very early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders and the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. This was their goal. This was their desire. This was their plan. And while the Sanhedrin was essentially a bunch of judges, 
The judgment in Rome or in the Roman court was the sole responsibility of the imperial magistrate or the Roman governor of the province. There was no grouping of people. It wasn't like five judges who would get a vote and they would come to a consensus about whether or not to put someone to death. There was one guy who had one vote. That's how these cases were dealt with. Now Mark also tells us here in verse 1 that it was very early in the morning, which would be important Because Roman officials began their day as early as possible. Roman officials ended their work usually early afternoon so that they could enjoy, and this is a quote, what they referred to as the necessary organized leisure of all Roman gentlemen. I wish, I wish that my, my job title had that in there, that, that I, could, I could organize my day so that I could enjoy the necessary organized leisure of all Roman gentlemen. Uh, this, this, was, this was a time where you basically got to show off your inactivity. So you start as early as you can in the day. You get done just what you have to get done so that around early afternoon, you could leisurely do nothing and have everybody see it. This was the way of the Romans. This is what it means to have power and authority. You flaunt it. This was the Roman way. So if the Sanhedrin leaders had delayed until later, they would not have been able to see the Roman governor, either because his calendar for that day would have already been filled and he would not continue to work into mid or late afternoon because then he would miss out on the necessary organized leisure of a Roman gentleman. Uh, Or... um, he already would have been done for the day. So they needed to get to him early. So early in the morning, they tie up Jesus and they lead him through the city. This was important. It says that they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over. So upon coming up with their plan, they tie Jesus up and they lead him to the Roman governor. And the Roman governor that they hand him to was Pilate. Now Pilate was the fifth Roman governor and he held office from 26 AD to 36 AD. And according to historians, Pilate was well known for being cruel and a man without any compassion, any sentiment for Jewish religious beliefs or practices. He felt that they were superstitious wastes of time. He didn't care what the rules were. He didn't care what their beliefs were. And he saw them as a distraction and something that got in the way of his, him doing his job. Now, most governors of the time lived in the city of Caesarea, But they were required to be in Jerusalem during important Jewish festivals to avoid, and sometimes at times to squelch, riots. So during the Passover, Pilate lived in the palace of Herod, which was situated on the northwest section of the city of Jerusalem. So you can imagine he's already probably in a bad mood. Tensions are high, there's, there's, you know, the city has quadrupled in size from its normal population to what was there during the Passover festival. So, so people, everybody's on edge. He's, he's having to work. He had to leave where, he's regularly, where he usually lives and come back into the city of Jerusalem, which he didn't want to be at. You could imagine him being a little frustrated. Now, as Mark's custom, he doesn't tell us everything. Mark kind of just cuts to the point and and moves through things really quickly. It's assumed that something took place between verse 1 and verse 2. And in a situation like this, where you have the, the religious leaders taking someone to the Roman ruler to find a way to put him to death, there there were certain policies that were in place for how this was to be done. So for the governor to hear a case, 
the offenses uh, of the criminal had to be given to him either written in a written form or verbally by the leaders of the Sanhedrin who needed to convince the governor that Jesus had committed a capital offense by Roman standards. So there's two criteria. First off, generally speaking, you, you don't send the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest, he didn't send one of his servants to take Jesus in. He had to go himself. You're about to speak to the man with the most power in all of Israel. He's not going to listen to your servant. You've got to show up yourself. And you can't bring him an offense that he sees as petty, right? So, so he's not going to deal with, with a property line dispute. He's not going to deal with a you-took-my-sheep dispute. He's only going to deal with a capital offense dispute. That's the only thing that he's going to bother with. And so they have to not only convince, or they have to convince him that the crime of Jesus is worthy of his time and worthy of Roman judgment. And so the Sanhedrin accused Jesus not of claiming to be the Messiah, which is what they accused him of in the trial the night before. They accused him of blasphemy. But before Pilate, he's accused of being, of claiming to be king. Now understand, to be the Messiah is a religious term. To be a king is a political term. Which one do you think Herod would be more apt to care about? He didn't care at all about religious terms. Remember, we're living in a polytheistic culture. We're living in a time where there's, there's deities and there's gods that people are worshiping all over the Roman Empire. And they all have their own high priests and rulers who, who are in control of how the religion is supposed to be run. But that was irrelevant to the Romans. They didn't care about any of that because they saw religious authority as being ethereal. It was somewhere other. But political authority, that's where they intervened. That's where they got involved. So you can see the wisdom here in the, the Sanhedrin in saying, we're not going to tell Pilate that Jesus' crime is accusing, or claiming to be the Messiah, a religious term. We're going to tell him that Jesus' crime is claiming to be king, a political term. And a political term like claiming to be king constituted high treason against the Roman governor at the time. So you can understand why Pilate would listen. Look at verse, verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Notice that Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And as I've already said, it seems that the, the accusation by the Sanhedrin was that Jesus was claiming to be the king of the Jews. And Jesus' answer is particularly and intentionally vague. He goes out of his way to not give a defense for himself. Look at verse 3. The chief priests accused him of many things. Now Mark reminds us here that although one accusation was, that it was really important to Pilate, being Jesus claiming to be king, the Sanhedrin, like at their own hearing a few hours earlier, brought as many charges against Jesus as they could. It was kind of a, we're just going to throw everything at him and see what sticks. Maybe we'll find something, some charge that, that Pilate finds particularly offensive. Maybe it's just a, a pet peeve of his and that'll, that'll push him over the top to execute Jesus. In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 23, he tells us that some of these other charges were that they accused Jesus of inciting a riot, um, which, by the way, never happened. So if he was doing that, he wasn't good at it. Second, forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, all of these were obviously fake. 
Mark specifically deals with the paying taxes to Caesar. In Mark chapter 12, verse 17, Jesus said, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus went out of his way in that interaction to emphasize it's not a moral dilemma for you to pay taxes to Caesar. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Look at verses 4 and 5. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now I want you to notice that Pilate is amazed specifically here because of Jesus' lack of response. It's Jesus' silence that amazes him. Now again, we're dealing just as it was in the Sanhedrin. There's no such thing as a defense attorney. The only one who could speak on Jesus' behalf at this trial is Jesus himself. He could call witnesses if he wants, but he's the one who has to make the argument to set himself free. And according to the Romans, if a person wasn't smart enough to defend themselves, then they were not worth their freedom. So it was very important for, for Romans in particular. It was, it was something that you stand on that you can defend yourself. And here you have Jesus being, being accused of all kinds of things that Pilate even recognizes, as we'll see later, were ridiculous. And yet Jesus doesn't defend himself. Not at all. He doesn't say a single word to alleviate any of these accusations, to throw them aside to prove his innocence, to defend his character. He's silent. And to this, Herod is amazed. Or sorry, Pilate is amazed. Now, Pilate didn't know why Jesus would have been silent. But those who are reading Mark's gospel know the answer because Jesus is in submission to God. Remember back in chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying to God, God, if there's any other way, take this cup away from me. And when he hears Judas coming, that's the answer to his prayer. This is the will of God the Father. And so Jesus took no effort, made no attempt to free himself in any way, shape, or form so that he could then free us. Or in chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice that Jesus didn't say, I'm going to be found guilty and then have to pay my life. He says, I'm, I'm going to give up my life. I'm going to hand it over as a ransom for many. Or Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The silence of Jesus speaks volumes, and I don't think we often hear it. Let's keep going. Look at verses. We're going to start with verses 6 through 8. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. 
the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Now, I want you to notice, first off here, that the Roman governor had the full authority to grant amnesty to anyone that he wished. He, it didn't matter who they asked for from the prison. Pilate had the ability to pardon them. Pilate could free them. And according to verse 7, there was a man named Barabbas, whose full name, according to Matthew 27, was Jesus Barabbas. There's no coincidence in the reality that we're talking about two Jesuses here. Yeshua is here. This man was in prison because he was an insurrectionist, meaning that he led a revolt against Rome. And Mark also tells us that he was a murderer. Now what I want you to catch is that most likely his, his murder, because to be an insurrectionist at this time means to be revolting against Rome, means that his murder was probably of a Roman. He probably killed a Roman soldier. So when you, when you think about who is the most powerful person in the room, from their perspective, it's Pilate. Pilate doesn't care at all about Jesus. But they're willing to risk his wrath by asking that another Jesus be set free who tried to rebel against Rome and overthrow the Romans and kill the Roman soldier. We want you to free that guy and we want you to crucify this guy who we say caused riots. Who we say wants to be king. The point that both Mark and Pilate seem to be making here is that there was a vast difference between Jesus Barabbas and Jesus the Messiah. One was fully guilty, fully deserving of what was coming before him. And the other was completely innocent. There was no charge that could stick. There's no one who is trying to stand up for Barabbas and say, he, he didn't lead that insurrection. He wasn't guilty of murder. No one. We have no historical documentation of anyone saying anything positive about Barabbas. Anything. And yet, Jesus the Christ fed the hungry, cared for the poor, raised the dead, healed the sick, Welcome the sinners. That's the one who deserves to die. Look at verses 9 and 10. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to them. Now in Pilate's question, we need to notice that it was given with sarcasm. For Pilate, being the king of the Jews is a title that no one would want. So he says it with kind of derision. He uses the title so often because it's a title of contempt. It's absurd to him. So in my life, and this won't make sense to you, but my brain is freezing right now. So in my life, you know, to, to be, for example, the manager of the Cubs, that's the dream job. To be the manager of the White Sox, well, well, you might as well be a garbage man. Like, what's the point? Like, like there's nothing, work at a sewage plant. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing good. There's nothing, there's, that's worthless. 
Don't put that on your resume. That's the way that Pilate viewed to be king of the Jews. You want to be a king of the slaves? Could you not think of a better title? Could you, do, you have, do you have that little of ambition? To be king of the Jews from Pilate's perspective is, is to, be, to be the first among losers. He says it specifically over and over with derision. But notice also that Pilate acknowledges that the only reason that Jesus is before him is because of the self-interest of the Sanhedrin. Pilate acknowledges the innocence of Jesus himself. He makes it abundantly clear that he acknowledges that Jesus is not here because he's guilty of a crime. He's not here because he truly wants to be the king of the Jews. He's not here because he truly has started a riot or started an insurrection. He's not here because of violence against other people. He's here, and the only crime that he's guilty of is making the leadership of Israel insecure. That's it. Now, I know sometimes people like to put Pilate in kind of a, 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 a nice light because, you know, Pilate washes his hands and says, this person's blood is not on me, as if that means anything. Pilate has the authority in this situation, full and foremost. No one challenges his authority here. And Pilate here is willing to allow Jesus to die, knowing full well that he is guilty of nothing. Look at verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Despite his innocence, despite his, the, the healings, despite all that he had done and said, the chief priest didn't seem to have a hard time convincing the crowd to turn on Jesus and demand that the guilty man be set free instead of the innocent. I want you to catch the reality that this is, this is the way that humans view justice. It's a pendulum. It's not a fixed point. It swings dependent upon how we feel and how it best suits us. Romans 3.18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. That wasn't just talking about them. That's talking about us too before Christ. And if there's no fear of God before our eyes, then there's no comprehension of true justice. Humans are easily swayed from the truth. We're called sheep for a reason. And I want to challenge you and I want to encourage you to not be moved so easily as so many are from the truth. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It was about a year ago this week-ish, give or take a week or two, that everything shut down. All of our lives changed rather drastically. COVID hit and, and everything, was, everything was new. And, and although I'm very happy to be on this side rather than that side, I don't want to go back a year from now and do that again. And I'm very happy that the, the, the future looks a lot brighter now than it did a year ago. I, I think there's been some serious um, cracks that God has used this pandemic to reveal in the church. 
Because unfortunately, oftentimes we like to say that we, we are alert and we are of sober mind. We have a tendency to allow our presuppositions, our wisdom, our culture to be raised above the level of Scripture. And there have been many, many churches in our community and in our state whose light have been, has been put out in its community because of arguments and disagreements over masks and distancing. There's this guy in the second century, Polites, and, and he's, he's known for being a guy who was kind of like Peter. And at the time, people are being persecuted. They're being murdered publicly and gruesomely for their belief in Christ. And, and this, the, there was this gathering of Christians that was kind of underground. It was hidden so that they wouldn't be caught. And, and one person got up and he talked for over an hour about how, how horrific all of this is because he had been taxed an extra, basically would turn out, turn out to be an extra $15 for us. All right? And he was, he was talking about how horrible this is and where is God in all of this? And Blighty stood up. And he walked to him, and he just slapped him across the face and said, people are dying. You're missing the whole point of what's going on. And I honestly wonder how he would have stood up and how he would have responded to some of us over this last year. And the way in which we have We've walked through this trial. I know many pastor friends who have been so crippled by leading in a period like this that they've left the ministry. I know of at least five churches in Michigan alone, just from my small sphere, who have closed their doors permanently because of the bickering and tension and infighting inside of a group of people who say that Jesus is the most important thing. I praise God that he has revealed and opened our eyes to, to many of the, of the pride that we've had and the fact that, that we haven't done as good of a job as sometimes we think we have at being biblically literate at being alert and of sober mind, at being willing to love one another and bear with one another. It's easy to say, yes, I'll love you, unless they tell me I have to wear a mask. And I'm not going to say that. Or unless they tell me I can't wear a mask, that I'm not going to do that. The church should have been the most shining beacon in the world of how to deal with conflict over this last year. I think we got some growing to do. And I praise God for making it apparent, making some things apparent to me, some blind spots that he's made apparent to me about some of my thoughts. And I hope that you've been praying and saying, Lord, don't let me, don't let me, uh, miss out on the opportunity to learn and grow my faith from this last year, this last trial that we've been through.
Lord, test me and see. Has my pride gotten in the way? Have my, has my understanding of Scripture, is it, is it wrong? But we need to be wise or else we might find that a hundred years from now the church looks upon us with the same derision that we look upon the crowd standing before Pilate. Let's keep walking through together. Look at verses 12 through 14. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Now I want you to remember that these people can see Jesus' swollen face. Remember that when he was with the Sanhedrin, not only was he spat on and punched and beaten by the high priest and by the other people on the Sanhedrin, but after they finished judging him, they released him to the guards who also beat him. They remember who Jesus claimed to be, who his actions showed himself to be. Many were there a few days before when Jesus came riding in on a donkey with shouts of Hosanna. Yet to Pilate's surprise, they do not want to save the innocent. In fact, they're not even going to make the argument why Jesus should be crucified anymore. They're willing to follow the lead of their oppressive leaders and they follow them right into the actions that lead straight to the front line of, when it, of, it, of the judgment of God. For they have condemned God's perfect and only Son. And when the governor protested that there was no sufficient cause by which Jesus had merited death, the people disdainfully and persistently shouted their demand with even more passion, crucify him. Crucify him. Look at verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Despite the fact that Pilate had unconditional power to either kill both men or release both men. Understand that he had the freedom to do that. No one was going to stand over him and say, nope, you can't do that. Save Caesar alone, who's so far out of the picture, it doesn't matter. Pilate had every ability to say, you know what? I don't think what you guys are doing are right. I don't think it's just. So I'm going to let Jesus go. And you know what? I'm going to let Barabbas go just because I feel like it. Or he could have said in that instance, you know what? Just because you asked me, I'm going to kill both of them. He had every freedom to do that. He had all the authority in the world to do that. And yet, he only acted to satisfy the crowd. Out of fear, most likely of a riot, he chose to satisfy the crowd rather than to seek Justice. Notice that Mark is stressing that it was not only the Jewish leaders and Jesus' followers who had rejected him, but it was even the Romans who knew him to be innocent of any crime who rejected him. Now let me just throw out there, there's a lot of people who have this tendency because of uh, Jesus being crucified. Some people say, well, 
the, the Jewish people should be punished because they're the ones responsible for Jesus' death. And then some people say, well, the Romans should be responsible, so anyone with Roman descent should be punished because they're responsible for Jesus' death. I think we need to back up a little bit and catch Mark's picture here. Because Mark is emphasizing the reality that Jesus' own friends betrayed him and abandoned him. The Jewish people condemned him, breaking their own laws to condemn him, and the Romans, knowing he was fully innocent, condemned him to death. No one gets out okay. No one gets out unscathed. We are all guilty when it comes to the death of Jesus. The only perfectly innocent human ever to die that way is Jesus. And to condemn one group tells me that you've missed the story. Because whether you have a Jewish heritage, whether you have a Roman heritage, is irrelevant. If you're a sinner, you would have done the same. You may have been one of Jesus' disciples who abandoned him, You may have been part of the crowd who yelled crucify him. You may have been part of the Roman elite who praised Pilate's decision. This is the reality of our sin. It makes justice a pendulum that only stops when it suits us best. It says Pilate released Barabbas to them. So his first act to satisfy the crowd was to release Barabbas. But apparently that was not enough because Pilate, um, probably who couldn't care less about Jesus, had Jesus flogged. Now I want you to catch two things. One, he didn't have to do this. There was no Roman law that dictated that someone had to be flogged before being crucified. This was Pilate's choice. No one asked for it. He came up with it. And the second thing I want you to catch is that this is a terrifying and horrific punishment. The Romans had a special tool for flogging. It was called a flagellum. It was a short piece of wood with leather strips tied to the end of it. So think one of those little mini bats, only a little bit thicker with strips of leather tied to the end of it. And these strips of leather would then have uh, pieces of bone or metal nails or other sharp things at the end of those leather strips because the purpose was not to bruise the back. The purpose was to rip open the back. The goal was not to have something slap the back really hard. The goal was to have something inserted into the back. So much so that when the flagellant then was pulled back to be swiped again, that pieces of the back would be ripped from their place. The flagellum was designed to ensure that the flesh of the criminal was shredded, sometimes to the point that bones were clearly visible. And the Romans set no number of strokes with the flagellum. It wasn't that they said, okay, we're going to do this ten times and then we're going to move on. Men were beaten until they passed out, until the guards felt that they were sufficiently ripped open, or they died. 
Those were the only three standards. And I want to throw this out to you to understand why the the guards had no compassion for Jesus. Because if the person died, there was no penalty. They've been called to die by crucifixion. If they die on their way to crucifixion, it happens. And so if they died during the, the whipping process, well, then the guards would say, well, that's one less person we have to pull the post up for. It was left to the mercy of the soldiers to decide when to stop. Again, this was something that Jesus knew was ahead of him when he came to save us. In chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus told his disciples not only would he be betrayed, not only would he be condemned, not only would he be crucified, but he would also be flogged. Jesus knew full well Chapter 10 is a a little over a year from this moment. And Jesus knew what was coming down for him. And it says that he handed him over to be crucified. Here the Sanhedrin has finally gotten their way. They have manipulated the crowd and Pilate. And so the innocent man now stands condemned to die by crucifixion, the death of the common criminal. But what I want you to hear is the thing that we often miss. Notice Jesus' defense. Notice that there isn't one. Notice that we don't have Jesus standing up to defend himself in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing from him. He willingly remained silent so that we would always hear the echo of, his, of the expression of his love. And yet, despite this, how often do we speak foolish things? Things like, I don't think Jesus really cares that much about me. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and his sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it until my time is done. The brilliant theologian John Owen said that the greatest offense that anyone can levy against God Almighty, any Christian can levy against God Almighty, is to question or challenge his love for them. The silence of Jesus in this moment should reverberate in your heart because his silence is the loudest, 
clearest, plainest statement that could ever be. I love you. Not the best you that you think you can be. For even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said that. He remained silent here while contemplating the worst of us. And in that state, his silence expressed, I love you. Should not that statement cause us to quench and suppress our insecurities and cause us to rest more fully in the full expression of his love? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the goodness of who you are and what you've given us. I thank you for the expression of your love in Christ. And I ask, Lord, that as we contemplate it this week, that you would remind us again that your love is fuller than we can imagine. And you have made it abundantly clear to us by willingly enduring condemnation from sinners like us, beatings that we could not endure so that we could be free and so that we could always and forever know that in Christ and Christ alone we are loved forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.